Hi, my name is Rosie Millard. I'm the chair of BBC Children in Need, and you're listening to the Us People podcast with Savvy Rocks. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Yes People podcast. I'm your host, Savvy Rocks, and today I'm humbled enough to have Rosie, who is the chairperson at the BBC Children in Need. Hey Rosie, how are you? Thank you so much for coming on the Yes People podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. No, that's perfect. So one of the first questions I always ask everyone once I get into the podcast is for them to tell me a little bit about their background and where they actually grew up and how those elements help them become the person who they are today? Well, um, I grew up in in South London and uh, I had a a pretty happy childhood and um, it was it was it was great it was I went to a nice school I lived with my family in Wimbledon and um, the thing the the first thing that really changed my life I think was um, going to university and I went to the University of Hull yes Um, Hull is a very um, it's a it's a place I think it's the most unknown city in the whole of the UK because it's it's right out there on the on the in the northeast coast Um, it's sort of if you know where Liverpool, Manchester and Leeds are, just continue the horizontal line and you get to Hull. But not many people go there. It's only got a population actually about as big as Islington in North London. Oh, wow. So 200,000 people. Yeah. And when I went there in the 80s, it had just, its big industry, which was fishing, had just collapsed. And um, uh, and there was a lot of unemployment and, and there were a lot of, it was a very low and still is a low wage income place. And uh, I just absolutely loved it. It's an amazing place. It's very, very flat. It's, it's, mm. it's got big horizons. It's got wonderful architecture. It's on the bank of this enormous estuary, the Humber. Um, and it's very unknown. And, and, and I did drama and English there. And we just had a real laugh. We, we just got on with it. We no, nobody ever went home because it was so far from everywhere. No matter if you came from Glasgow or Stoke or London, it was still a long way, and that changed my life really, because I was I was living up in the north, I was living in a in a very left wing place, um, and it 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 showed me what progressive politics could be like and how necessary it is to in order to change people's lives and and how social investment in roads and schools and social services is actually critical. Um, And many, many years later, in 2017, Hull was awarded the the honor of being the UK City of Culture. Oh, wow. And I was given the huge chance of chairing the board that led the City of Culture program. It was an enormous, it was a 35 million pound year of, of, of wonderment and celebration. And I could see the city that I'd really grown up in. You know, I was at, went from the age of 18 to 21, blossom and become something different while celebrating what it is about it that makes it very special. And that 
that was a life-changing thing. And we did a huge program for the children in Hull, for the young people who have not got a lot of advantages. They don't, there's not a lot of money sloshing around in Hull and they don't travel very much. So they hadn't seen theatre, ballet, opera, great art. They had seen a bit of it, but not much. And we brought it all to them. Um, we really fully engaged with the children, young people there. And that is what led me to to have the experience and desire to, to help transform children, young people's lives, which in the end has ended up for me chairing BBC Children in Need, which is a very big and profound charity. It connects yeah. with thousands of children across the UK. That's such a good story to tell. Whoa. How do you focus on giving disadvantaged children access to world-class culture? How do you manage to change your strategies in how you do things constantly to help children in need? Well, children in need isn't really about, it can be about culture, but it is about, it is about children who are in sometimes desperate conditions. They are suffering from poverty. They are um, experiencing domestic abuse. They could be refugees. They could be homeless. Um, they could be lonely. Um, and, or they could, they could, they might need a bed. I mean, uh, we have a, a, a three million pound project enterprise called Emergency Essentials, where the charity provides essentials to families who don't have the things that are necessary for a safe and happy life, an oven, a fridge, a, a bed. So children in need provides that on a on a year by year basis to very, very needy families. We do lots of other things that the, the, the charity itself connects with about three thousand grassroots charities across the UK, from John O'Groats down to Penzance. Um and so there are small charities and we give them grants for for three-year projects and what we normally do is we fund key workers and we fund support workers so we will fund um, somebody to to work with ch small children with learning difficulties in Wall's End for example in, in near Newcastle so this woman will will do water play with small children she will teach them how to sign if they uh, are deaf uh, she would teach you she will play with them she'll also give the parents some respite because it's quite hard work if you're bringing up uh, a, a child with, le with significant learning difficulties particularly if you haven't got much money so so children need you know works on an enormous variety of charities um but but the the heart of it is to bring joy and hope and fulfillment to disadvantaged children across the UK. In Hull, our cultural project, our cultural program for, for children was actually to bring great work to them, which had a meaning to them. So we didn't just plonk something in front of them that they didn't know about. What we would do is work with them using stories of the, of the city that they knew about. Um, and work with them on a long-term basis. So, for example, the Royal Ballet, which never normally leaves London, came to Hull, and they worked over a period of weeks with children who loved to dance, and 
they put on a dance in the centre of town with the children. So it wasn't just sort of parachuting and saying, oh, this is great art, you must look at it. They, they actually worked with the children, dancing with them. And then they put on a big show um, for one night only at the grand, big the, the theatre in Hull, which we'd had redone for the year. And by a sort of miraculous stroke of luck, the director of the Royal Ballet, Kevin O'Hare, is from Hull. And because Hull is very isolated, it has a weird sort of speciality in, in teaching um, particularly boys to dance. And about three or four of the principals at the Royal Ballet and also other ballets like Birmingham Royal Ballet and um, the, 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 the Kirov Ballet in, in um, St. Petersburg, um, the, the Marinsky Ballet in St. Petersburg, uh, came from Hull. So all these people came back and we peopled the, the theatre with children it was children really who who had the seats in the theatre and um, the director of the Royal Ballet came on stage and he just said it's great to be home and for a small child to be sitting in the stalls of the new theatre in Hull I mean you could hardly hear the piano they were dancing to the piano because the noise of the children talking excitedly and opening their suites and clapping and shouting was was enormous it was significant but wonderful and to have Someone like Kevin O'Hare, who is the director of the Royal Ballet, saying it's good to be home is very powerful for a child because they think, actually, I don't live in a backwater. I live in a place where, from where it is possible to have enormous fulfillment in, in, in the artistic world. It's not just for people in London. It's not just for people who've had privilege. It, it can also be for, for us. And that, that, I think, is one of the the enormous messages of, of the City of Culture um, programme, which was in Derry, London Derry, in uh, Northern Ireland um, in 2013. Then it came to Hull, and next year it's going to be in Coventry. And it's very important that this sort of cultural activity happens outside the capital and outside main centres of artistic engagement and artistic um, infrastructure and investment. You know, not a lot of public money goes to to arts institutions in Hull because there aren't that many yeah that's so true. it kind of kick it kickstarts things and things like the radio one big weekend came I mean the BBC were amazing they, they helped us a lot um and so we had people like Stormzy playing in Hull well that doesn't normally happen or <laughs> you know, little mix I mean you know young people in Hull don't see big stars on a regular basis because they don't normally come and play in Hull. So the Radio 1 Big Weekend came and that was a, 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 an amazing weekend full of great happiness. That's amazing. How, how important is it to you, Rosie, for children to have a voice to be helped, especially when it comes to the arts? Oh, enormously, enormously, because, <laughs> because they're, the, they're the audiences of the future. Yeah, They sure. are. Yeah, And it is so depressing when you go to walk around the National Gallery or you go to see a play or an opera or a concert and, you know, you see that actually it's, it's older people who are the beneficiaries and the recipients. Um, older people are great, but they were young once and they were taken to the theatre once. And, you know, you, you're not going to grow the audiences of the future if you put off 
young people. One of the most wonderful things I've ever been to see, ever, was um, a concert for young people at the Festival Hall in London. And I walked in and the, the whole concert was sold out. The Festival Hall is a huge arena. It seats about, I don't know, 1,700 people. And it looked, when you walked into the back of the auditorium, it looked as if it was half full because it was full of children and they were so small that their heads Aww. didn't come over the back of the seat. <laughs> I know. It was absolutely, I was, I was in floods of tears even before sitting down, Aww. you know. And I believe that actually if you haven't been to the theatre or a concert, any sort of concert, folk music, pop music, classical music, opera, by the time you're 25, you're never going to go. Actually, you're never going to go. You are never going to think it's for you. And it absolutely is for you. Yeah. <laughs> of course it is. Yeah. You know, we, we're lucky in this country. We have a, we have a very, you, we have a very um, uh, well-established world of subsidized arts. That's true. Um, you know, compared to America, where there isn't really that tradition, that, that, that set up, you know, we do have the Arts Council. We do have Creative Scotland. We have the Arts Council of Wales. We have the Arts Council of Northern Ireland. And these are, and then there's directly funded galleries, museums, um, and institutions. And a lot of public money goes into these places. And it's important that if all the public is funding them, that all the public can take part in them. And it's really important. And, you know, not every parent is going to be able to take their children to shows because it's expensive. That's true. And it requires a certain amount of confidence and knowledge. And if they haven't been, they're not going to take their, their children. I used to um, be the chief executive of a charity called Children in the Arts. Um, and what we did there was was connect world-class companies with schools and schools in particularly underprivileged areas. Um, and so children and young people could access these museums, theatre companies, dance companies within the school day and the school would take them. And that is a very good way. That is a very way of getting all children involved. Because you'll find that, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's the usual suspects who end up going to, to places. And, and it, you know, opening a, a child's eyes and engagement with wonderful, great world-class art is life-changing. That's it true. Is. It, yeah. I mean, it just, it's just wonderful. That's very true. Do, do you think people have become, so I'm going to change the topic a little bit. Do you think that people have become more aware of mental health? And if so, how can we work together to improve more awareness of mental health, especially when it comes to young children who may have mental health? How do you feel about it, Rosie? I think, I think mental health is, is one of the burning issues of, of, of the time. I don't think it's the only issue. Yeah. I, think there's, I, think, I think poverty is is a significant issue i think it's an absolute disgrace that we are the fifth richest and fifth largest economy in the world and one quarter of our children live under the poverty line 
that is that is a national shame that is a national embarrassment and and it's shocking that that's allowed to continue um i don't think mental health is disconnected with poverty by the way i think uh, but i think that anxiety and mental health and worry and fear are very very uh, present in the lives of children and young people and i think that people have started to get switched on to it um i think the fact that childline which children need has funded and is funding um not exclusively it's funded by a lot of different different um stakeholders um but the fact that childline is 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 so used so much is an example of how worry and anxiety and fear are present in the lives of our children and young people and that that is just awful and i think that that is about job insecurity i think it's about um i mean currently anxiety about covid i think that the fact that 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 the coronavirus lockdown has meant that millions of children have had their schooling interrupted is shocking and wrong um you know children are not uh, at the sharp end of of the coronavirus and uh, but i think they have i think the remedy for coronavirus has been much more savage than 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 even the the disease itself i think that it has really it could blight many many futures for many many children yeah, so true. i think i think people are getting switched on to mental health um i think as always if you have if you have personal money to throw at it if you can if you organize uh, uh, therapy for your for your for children that's yeah. that's fine but if you're looking for the health service you know waiting times are very very long that's true. waiting lists are long yep and i think it's hard most definitely who would you say is your inspiration for you to actually do what you're doing today? Is there anyone that you can say, this person supported me in my life and they made a drastic difference and this is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing at the moment? Um, well, I think uh, my parents were inspirational to me. They're both doctors. Um, oh, wow. They both, they both worked for the health service. Um, I... Uh, my mother was particularly um, uh, very keen on the arts and she took me to a lot of artistic things. She encouraged me and she made me be believe that the arts was, was for me as well as anyone else. And that was, that was important. Um, I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of helping hands along the way um, from, from people, you know, the, the outgoing director general of the BBC, Lord Hall has been he was my boss when I was a when I was a correspondent at, at BBC ah. as an arts correspondent he was the head of news and then as director general he came to Hull he said I'm going to make 2017 completely Hull centric I'm going to bring all the programs up here and I'm going to help you and he did he was amazing um and he encouraged me to apply for the job at, at Children in Need and you know I I owe an awful lot to him um and I think also, I I'm always I, I think role models are very important for women in particular for young women. Um, young women have there's a bit of a confidence crisis of confidence going on that I I I'm not sure young men have, 
And I think that for me, it was very, when I was starting out as a journalist, I would look at the newspaper and see women who are slightly older than me doing it. Julie Birch on Janet Street Porter, two of the names that spring to mind. These were audacious, daring women who, you know, said what they thought and, and kind of did it their way. And I found it, that very inspiring. And I think that young women should actively look at role models, just a bit, just decide what they want to do and look and see who's doing it slightly a few years ahead of them and think, okay, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to try and do it as well. Yeah. And that, I think that that's a very helpful thing to do for women. That's perfect. You have written, correct me if I'm wrong, Rosie, you've written four books. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one is, one's called the taste if correct me one's called the tastemakers and yep. another one's called a survey of the british contemporary art um, amongst amongst other books you've written could you tell us how you got inspired to write these books and what each book meant to you while you were writing them well the tastemakers um every journalist wants to write a book and if they tell you they don't they're lying okay <laughs> I like that. Every, every journalist, because every journalist, if you're working online, on radio, in print, television, yeah, what we true. all want is that little row of numbers and 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 capital letters, which is a British Library catalogue yeah, number. That's true. Because that, you know, we work in an ephemeral world. Our work is seen today and then gone, unless it's really. Um, unless you're very unlucky and you're, you, you, you've done something on Twitter which kind of hangs around forever and is awful. But, you yeah. know, for most of us, our work is, as I say, fish and chip paper um, the next day, although it's quite a dated concept, fish and chip paper, um, because, you know, print is, is not as, as big as it used to be. Anyway, um, journalists all want to write books because that's a sort of immortality of sorts, to have something in between two covers and with a British Library number on it. And I was really, really lucky. I was really lucky to be the arts correspondent at the BBC, working in TV and radio and the sort of burgeoning online at uh, the, 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 between 1994 and 2004. So it was all through the, the, the beginning of the millennium, through the beginning of the lottery, Tate Modern, you know, all those huge new buildings and also the YBAs. And the YBAs, for people who are thinking, oh, what's this? It means young British artists. And that is people like Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin and the Chapman brothers and, and Mark Quinn and, and Mark Wallinger and all these exciting artists who suddenly broke out of the sort of formal, rather austere, rather distant um, position that, British contemporary art was in and suddenly you had people like Damien Hurst turning up on top of the pops and you have people like Tracy Emin going yeah this is my bed and <laughs> and, and and displaying her bed at Tate Tate Britain with sort of like used tampons and <laughs> empty bottles of gin and uh, you know just shocking and uh, and and electrifying yeah and people and and everyone got so excited about it and British art became the sort of epicenter of where is cool in the world there's always one country where they they, they sort of have the vibe at the, at the time and that was the uk grace and perry martin creed you know did the lights going on and off at tape Britain for his uh, uh turner prize winning exhibit 
um, I mean, he won the Turner Prize for lots of things, but that was the exhibit, the lights going on and off. And I was the arts correspondent at that time. And I was covering all this stuff and I was interviewing these people. And I thought, right, I'm going to write a book about this because I've got all these interviews. I might as well put them into a, and into a book and show how this very, very um, sort of out there um, and, and sort of somehow disregarded and mocked thing, which was contemporary art, suddenly became in the mainstream and suddenly having, having dismissed it or said a child of two could do this or a chimpanzee could do this and what's this is just, you know, this is a nonsense. Suddenly everyone wanted to have a bit of the glory that, that, that Damien Hirst and others had. And I and, and what I wanted to look at was that's why it's called the tastemakers because I wanted to see who it was that, that that was dictating taste and saying to everyone, look, I mean it happened everywhere, you know, Selfridges, yeah, so, Selfridges in London when it was when it was closed for renovations, it had scaffolding on it, and hey ho, it had a photograph by Sam Taylor Wood all over the the, the hoarding and the photograph had Elton John in it. So, you know, it was A, it was a contemporary artist doing it. B, it was in the public domain. You know, you don't have to pay anything to see it because you just walk along Oxford Street. And C, it wasn't, it wasn't un, it wasn't incomprehensible because it had Elton John, which who everyone knows. So it was, it had an access point for people who weren't necessarily art fans. It had an access point for everyone. And I wanted to unpick that. And, you know, one of the things I did was interview the, the then director of Selfridges um, and say, why did you do this? And he said, well, because it was, it, was, it was one of those rare times when contemporary art falls into step with everyone. Yeah. Oh, wow. If you, had, if you had no restrictions, Rosie, who would you be other than the person you are today? Oh, gosh. Ah. That's, a, that's a that's a that's a very good question. <laughs> I got Rosie. <laughs> who'd I be? Yeah, I tell you who I'd be. I would be the Secretary of State for Education. Oh, that's a good one. Mm. And I would, I would, I would persuade the Chancellor mm -hmm. to remove the 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 tax uh, benefits for private schools. And I would, I would put so much money into the state school system and I would, that it, well, I would, actually, I would go a bit further than that. I would, I would actually, I would encourage the banning of, of private schools. I would, I would, I would, I would, um, well, I think by removing the, their tax benefits. Um, yeah. The, that would effectively ruin them because their fees would go up so enormously. Yeah, there would be only, that's true. They would only be available for a very few, you know, sort of diplom princelings from abroad or diplomats' children or whatever, and then they would become irrelevant because I think that the, the educational system in the UK is, is, um, is detrimental to the future of our country. That's true. I agree with you there. Because I think it's unfair. And oh, yeah. I think it's a nonsense that 7% of the population have an enormous advantage. That's very a, true. And a perceived advantage because I don't even think the schools are necessarily better yeah. than many, many, many state schools. But the, the fact is that people just employ 
people they know from the old boy network and it's just unfair yeah that you know all you know many newspaper journalists maybe columnists high court judges doctors mps captains of industry um across the board come from a, a tiny 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 talent pool and and places at russell group universities most notoriously oxford and cambridge are made up from people from private school and i think it's a total nonsense because i just do not believe yeah. that 93 percent of the population young people are can't cut the mustard i don't believe it yeah even if they're more talented they still can't get in it's really hard to exactly get in. and exactly and actually they, you know, they, they're clever and young people are smart and, you know, and, and their schools and, and actually state schools are pretty decent in the UK. They could do with some more funding, certainly in places like London. I mean, a yeah. lot of a lot of time and effort has been put into improving the state system, but it needs to have middle class families need to support it Yeah, in the way that I middle agree. class families support the health service because the middle classes have access to community comms and they have confidence about about shouting if something's not up to scratch they hop up and down and they've got access to the airwaves so they can complain if things aren't going their way it's for the middle classes are famous for that and they need to put their efforts and their 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 money behind the education of all of our children yeah and it would I just agree. it would improve this nation do you agree with me yeah, yeah of course i do, do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i do no you've heard when like, when you were talking about education anything to do with education because i know exactly how that feels especially i was one of the people where at uh, the time where when university fees went up and i oh felt God. the brunt of that <laughs> um i was considerably lucky because obviously being from middle class within my father I had my father to help me but I understood a lot of my friends who were in university they didn't have that aspect of things where they had a parent to help pay and they're still in a lot of debt now yeah and it just puts people off you know if you think you've got to pay you're going to be 30 grand uh it just thinks you think okay I better not go better you know it's just not not worth how am I going to manage it yeah and it scares you in a way because you think you're leaving you want an education but you're leaving knowing that you're going to get a huge debt Mm. and and that scares a lot of young people where did you go I went to uh, New Cross University of London in South London great that's where I went South London love it South London (laughs) (laughs) where you were South London I decided to go there um I went to City of Westminster first and then I moved over um, because right. I loved music and I studied classical music. So I loved playing the piano and there wasn't really any one around me who was playing the piano as much as I loved it. So I decided to move away from the friends that I did have were doing something else. And I decided to do what I loved rather than follow the crowd. And, and how, did I- you, how did you start to learn the piano? Just something your parents just encouraged you to do? Um, my dad had a keyboard when I was younger. I think I must have been about five or six years old. He just had it there. And I used to just constantly go on it without him even telling me to. Um, mm. I started to learn and listen. I think my key to learning was listening. The fact that I had dyslexia, yeah. I think my gift was music. 
um, it helped me. So anything I would hear, my dad was amazed of how I would be able to play it in a certain amount of time on the on the keyboard. And then as I got older, I he decided to get me lessons um, to enhance my ability to play. And then from there, I kept on going. And I found that me not being able to read music in a way, not that it's, it's a good thing to, it's a beautiful thing to be able to read music. But for well, me, Paul McCartney can't read music. He's not done but, too badly. <laughs> see, there you go. But for me, I was just about to say, for me, I found that I was more creative knowing mm. that I was not able to read music compared mm. to my the people who were in my in my class or in my in my university doing the same as me when they would read music and they were asked to be more creative they got quite stuck yeah. whereas with myself I was more creative because I used my imagination more yeah yeah and I would say yeah. that to anybody just to use their imagination more but again I was lucky because I had some funding from my father who helped me yeah, yeah. You see, I mean, the thing is, I think that young people are also facing a future where AI is going to come in, artificial intelligence. Yeah, and 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 they're going to and they're going to take a lot of jobs that that are being done now by human beings are going to be done by machines. But the one thing that machines do not have is imagination and, and creativity. Free will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I think that it's really important to foster the imagination. It's the one Most thing definitely. we've got over these 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 silicon chips. <laughs> <laughs> these robots. I'm yeah. kind of against them. I'm like one of those. Yeah, I'm one of those people will fight against it. Um, how do you respond, Rosie, when it comes to others who? So, say for instance, you're doing something that you love. That you are doing something that you love. There is always going to be someone that has something to say about what you do. How do you handle that and how do you keep, what advice would you give to people about mm. believing in their ability to continue to do what they love? Well, when I wrote The Tastemakers, I had interviewed a whole bunch of art critics before when I was at the BBC as arts correspondent. So I'd be like, I'm now joined by, you know, insert name of, you know, man 20 years older than me who was an art critic and they all all be like oh Rosie you know lovely love to be on la, la, la. Uh, and then I wrote this book and they all were really pissed off about it because I jumped into their area and oh. and they wrote the most shocking reviews of this book they just said this book is a nonsense it's rubbish I mean I have to say the book is on 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 uh, the uh, reading list for for young people at, yeah. at um at the university of the arts doing uh, an arts degree so you know two fingers to that um <laughs> not to the list but to their but to their you know and and they just they just and i just read these reviews and i was just in floods of tears i was inconsolable oh. and i rang them up and i said how dare you how dare you stamp all over my effort you know no one yeah. tries to write a bad book and they said, oh, Rosie, Rosie, we're only joking. I said, it's not funny. How dare you? And it was awful. I, I was just totally, dis I, I wasn't destroyed by it, but I was, I was, I was really, it was like being punched. And even now I, I will write something for a newspaper or something online. And it takes real strong will not to read the comments afterwards yeah which are sometimes okay but mostly the sort of person who comments afterwards wants to have a bit of a go and it's awful it's really really upsetting and i and 
or if someone if you put something out on twitter and people don't like it and so so i've learned you know do not put inflammatory or controversial things i mean you know on twitter unless you've got a pretty hard skin yeah and also do not read the comments at the after you know the, the online comments about anything you do just don't read them don't don't read them it's just not worth it be proud of what you do and kind of you know be satisfied that what you've done is fair and good and you know obviously isn't libeling anyone or and that you stand by it and then be satisfied with that and you know i'm very great i love being a journalist and i think it's a huge privilege to have access to 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 be able to communicate and to be able to communicate my ideas or to interview people or whatever but and it's not that i'm not interested in people not liking it but it gets so savage and it's so painful that you know i think we're our own worst critics anyway you know women i think i'm possibly men but i think women are very very critical and god do i look okay do i look right yeah. you know do i look fat do i look ugly da, da, da. am i clever exactly you know you're full of kind of such sort of self criticism anyway that you don't need to add it by looking at other people criticizing you so oh, i true. you know i think it's particularly tough if you've ever watched question time and then gone on twitter and looked at what people are saying about the women on Question Time. It's just awful. It's just awful. You know, who is that old slag? Who is that old cow? Oh my God, she's got a face like that. I mean, it's just awful. There's um, one thing yeah. that I live. There's one thing that I live by, Rosie, and 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 it shows. It teaches me a lot about people, and it's how I treat people is a reflection of myself, and how they treat me is a reflection yeah. of themselves. So whatever they write in comments like that, it does say a lot about who they are as a person. Because I've noticed that when a person is in a good place or is a good person, they will uplift you no matter if they agree or disagree with you. Yeah. And um Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think a lot yeah. of people who are upset in the world and angry with themselves, those are the people that usually are the ones that have something negative to say about you. Absolutely. It's like a sort of it's like a mirror, you know, actually what they're doing is they're, they're saying how they feel about themselves. I agree. I agree. And I think you look at someone like Mary Beard, who's just, she's gone through so much criticism and she's so clever and funny and she's got such grace. And she also, you know, she spreads information and she, she delights in sharing what she knows about the ancient world. And I think she's remarkable. Um, and she's, but she, and she gets hurt by it. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not easy. People going, oh, God, you know, you're too old. You're too, brush your hair. You know, just shut up. Listen to what she's yeah. got to say. She's intelligent. See? No, I totally agree with you. What have you overcome, Rosie, that has made you change the way you think and feel about the way you do things and the way you interact with people? Well, about um, this time two years ago, I was diagnosed with a pretty large brain tumour. And, oh. um, I know, and, um, it was benign. It wasn't in my brain. It was on it, but it was, it was, it was big. Um, and it had to be removed and the operation was very perilous. Um, there was a lot of jeopardy because yeah. my skull had to be opened and, and this thing had to be taken out. And there was a lot of structures that were wrapped around it, veins and arteries and my optic nerve and, you know, 
and um you know i was told that i might i might i might not recover with 100% health afterwards um and so i so that's and i did i recovered perfectly and they took all the, the whole tumor out but it was a, it was a time when i was very close to to either death or or a um a significant change of life as i knew it and health as i knew it and um and so i decided to uh to change the way i lived and um i uh, i had been in love with someone um i i decided to um be with this person and uh, so i made that change um in my life and i also i mean it's a cliche <laughs> you you think right well, i'm just going to do what's in, what's important for me now because life is short and um and i also learned how to deal with calamity because when you have a brain tumor it feels like a calamity i mean it is it's very very hard i'd wake up every morning and i'd think something awful has just happened what is it and then i'd remember oh god i've just had a brain tumor diagnosed and i would just lie in bed just tears pouring down my face it was just awful and what 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 i found was that if i told people i had this terrible thing because people are kind and nice and they go oh my god how awful and they they would burst into tears and kind of hug me and go oh my god and then i'd burst into tears and it was just awful and i learned how to deal with how to approach people who were telling me something dreadful had happened yeah it, have that compassion it's, it's, it's not the best thing to say oh you poor thing and, and start bursting into tears alongside them you, it's actually better to be practical and say right you know what actually is going on with with your life how can i help you that's yes. a better thing to do so i learned i learned a lot about about well that sort of challenge see that's, that's such a big one i don't think i've had one as as deep as that yet how huh. do you no it's true how do you accomplish your goals rosie what mindset do you need to have to start achieving what you want what advice would you give to people well i i'm um i'm a um i'm an inveterate marathon runner i try and run yeah, a marathon read. a year i read <laughs> and, that and and i am um, wall of china I, didn't you yeah i did yeah uh, i was going to do a couple this year but they've both been cancelled um sadly but um but marathon running is a very very good um uh sort of image or metaphor for coping with life i think because um you know life isn't a sprint it's a marathon and it's an achievement and when you finish when you're running down i've done 10 marathons when you're when you're finishing a marathon and you're running down the mile in london for example or the champs elysees in, in paris or 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 running towards the brandenburg gate in berlin or central park in new york you know you can see you can see the finish line and yes. and you're okay and you're running and everyone's cheering and you've achieved it and it's a very very profound moment it's a it's an absolute life memory and it's marvelous 
<laughs> um, but you only achieve it by A, believing you can achieve it. So True. self-belief. B, training. So you've got to take it seriously and you've got to get up every morning and do those runs and do that training thing. And C, taking it one mile at a time. You know, when you start on the, when you stand on the on the on the on the start line, yeah, to face the marathon, you do not think I'm just about to run twenty six point two miles. You think, right, I'm going to now run ten k, which is six miles. I'm now going to run ten k, and then I'm going to run another ten k. So let's just focus on this ten k now. You know, it's like I say to my children: do not have a twenty year plan of what you want to achieve. Have a five year plan. Because you can kind of you can kind of hold five years in your hand. So when you're starting, I mean the best, the most important part of the marathon is getting to the getting to the start line. If you've got to the start line, you're a winner because already because you've done the training and you've had the confidence and you've had the commitment and the discipline to do it. Yeah. And you know, so you think right, I'm now going to run in London. The first 10K is you run to the Cutty Sark. So I think I'm going to run to the Cutty Sark. And then you think, okay, I'm now going to run to, I'm now going to run to um, Tower Bridge because that's the next 10, 10K. Yeah. And then you think, okay, I'm now going to nip around Canary Wharf and um, I'm going to run back to Tower Bridge because that's the next 10K. And then you've got the last 10K in your hands and you know and you know it's going to happen you know you're going to achieve it and it is an achievement i mean a lot of people have done it um but a lot of people haven't and i mean that's okay i mean it's not for everyone but that's true i think any any big thing writing uh building a building writing a book you know bringing up a child uh running a marathon looking after somebody with a life-limiting disease or life-limiting condition, you know, any significant challenge, doing a new job. I mean, when I chaired the City of Culture, I was so nervous as I'd never been a chair of anything before and I wanted this so badly and I was so excited and I, you know, I was so honoured to be given the job of chair of Hull City of Culture but I was so I was so frightened. I before the first chair, before the first board meeting, I wrote down the whole meeting. I practiced it. Oh, wow. I wrote it all down, including hello. I wrote the script <laughs> for everything because I was absolutely I know. Good morning, hello, you know, and I named everyone and I welcomed them and we started the board meeting and it was just daunting. Um and preparation is is obviously sort of, sort of it, it, critical, but you know it's good to have these challenges. But you yeah. need to be prepared. And also, the other thing I think is you need what I call messianic belief in the ah. project. You need total belief. You know, you need to throw yourself into it wholeheartedly. I knew that Hull would be a brilliant city of culture. I just knew it. I was unshakable in my belief about it. And that belief is interesting because that infects other people. Other people started believing. And it was me and the leader of the city council. He had messianic, unshakable belief. 
And then we hired a quite brilliant chief executive who's now doing the the opening closing and 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 um the artistic events behind the Commonwealth Games. Um and he had messianic belief. And then gradually, 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 every single institution, every single company, every single school, the hospitals, the prison, the council, every single company, every child, every teacher, every individual in Hull got that belief, everyone. And that was amazing. That was a result. And that showed me that complete belief in what you're doing carries you through. That's true. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. What What are you most proud of that you actually stand for? Um, well, I think that. I think I think yeah, I'm proud that I, I stood you might for, say that. I think I stood up for the the culture and community and and the people of a of an unloved and mocked city, and I gave them back urban pride. I gave them back civic pride, and I gave them the chance to hold their heads up high because they deserved it. That's what I'm most proud of. If I never do anything else in my life, oh, uh, you know. It doesn't matter because I did that. What did you honestly when you came out of college? I, when I go in, when I go in by by train to the Hull, yeah. to Hull, I'm just yeah. I just look at the city and I just love it, and I'm so proud I took, could take part in helping it flourish. Oh, that shows dedication and passion for what you you love doing as a person. Yes, it 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 it, it does. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, that's what that's what keeps me getting up in the morning. That's true. That's true. What did you want to be when you first went to college? Was this always something that you wanted to be or was there a different No, I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to do oh. drama. I wanted to be in the theatre. And uh and then I went up to the Edinburgh Festival and we went up with a with a with a play and nobody came to see it and it was just awful and uh, I also Aww. found it uh, I just found doing drama uh, I just you have to be very, very, very self-focused and motivated to be a really successful actor. And I was just interested in lots of other different things in the art world. And um, and and so I thought, actually, what I'd like to do is I, I want to work in the arts. But actually, I want to find out about loads of different things. I want to find out about all the different art institutions and I want to find out about all the different artists. And I'm nosy, and so I thought, oh, maybe I'll be an arts journalist. <laughs> I, I didn't like even know I didn't even know that was a thing, and so I thought, I'm going to be an arts journalist. That's fantastic. And then I went to college, and I trained to be a journalist, and and I got my first job, and 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 you know, it's it was it was a good choice because I've loved it, and uh, and it's been it's been really interesting, and I've really really enjoyed it. So I just, you know, my children look to me and they say, well, what should I do with my life? And I said, well, you know, again, don't don't look at a 20-year thing. Look at a five-year thing. Five-year thing. Just think, well, what do I really love doing? I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but you just have to kind of keep, hold on to that. Yeah, that is true. That is most definitely true. Yeah. What is What is the best advice you have ever received? Um. Well, my first job, 
at Tyne Tees in Newcastle. I would run around going, oh, my God, I can't do this. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> and my boss, my then boss, took me to one side uh, and he said, stop panicking out loud. He said, everyone is panicking underneath yes. and everyone just walks around looking confident. That's what you've got to do. And I thought, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and... <laughs> And it really works, you know, if you're thinking, well, it's like going into the, the, the board meeting or anything. Yeah. Think, Goodness me, I'm so nervous. But if you just don't say it, people don't think you are. And then and then you won't be nervous. That's true, because they can't say what they can't see. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's, exactly. That's, def that's definitely true. If, if you could choose one quote, I ask everyone this question, if you could choose one quote that represents you as a person, what quote would you choose and why would you choose that particular quote to represent you? Um, a quote from where? From Any quote that resonates with you, so any quote that you've read. It could even be a quote that you've made up yourself that you kind of live by that helps you every day. Can we come back to this? Yeah, yeah. everyone comes back to that one. Everyone, <laughs> everyone comes back oh to that God. one. Okay. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about success. Define what success means to you because everybody has a different definition of what success means to them. But what does success mean to you as an individual? I think, I think it means finishing a project. I think it means starting with a project and seeing it through and not giving up. I like that. No, that mm. makes sense to me. No, that definitely makes sense. I've only got two more questions for you, Rosie. My second to last one is what advice would you give your fans and your followers about being successful or being successful or having a passion to do something and always believing in yourself because sometimes we feel like we have the lack of support, lack of money, we don't know what we want to do like we've spoken about before. What would your advice be to those people to help push them and keep them going? You're better than you think you are. That's what I'd say. You hit that. You hit the nail on the head, yeah. Mm. Definitely. I meet Finally, so many young yeah. people who just have no confidence. And, That's true. And it's just, it's just, it's That's just true. really, it's a real shame because, you know, just a little bit of confidence actually will bring them out. And, you know, it's important. Yeah. No, definitely. Finally, Rosie, my last question for you is. Where can we find you on all your social medias if someone would like to get in contact with you? Oh, uh, that's easy. Well, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm, I'm middle-aged person, so it's going to be Twitter, and it's at Rosie Millard. <laughs> Why did you say it like that? <laughs> because I don't because I don't do sort of don't really do Instagram. I don't do I certainly don't do TikTok. Um, I <laughs> I don't do sort of Snapchat or uh, you know. So it's it's Twitter. It's at Rosie Millard. No, that's perfect. Rosie, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Yes People podcast. It's been a blessing to have you on. Thank you. I'm sorry I can't think of a, a quote. I have, there, there are, there are lots. That I think, I think, well, I think, I think really, I think, I think I'll use the quote from, from Nike and just say, just do it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hear that, Nike? Yeah. You've been used. Yeah, I like that. Just <laughs> Guys. Do it. <laughs> Rosie, I want to thank you again for coming on the Yes People podcast. Oh, guys, thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Guys, thank you, thank you so, thank you Can't so much. Can I hear you play the piano? Oh, I would love to. Yeah, yeah. that would be nice. Yeah, I would definitely do that for you. Yeah, smashing. <laughs>
Okay. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the Ask People podcast. Please remember you can listen and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and any other platform that you prefer to listen to. Uh, please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also donate to the Ask People podcast by simply going to the Savvy Rocks website or type in paypal.me forward slash Ask People podcast. Thank you for listening. Stay happy, stay positive, and as always, please continue to be kind to one another. God, you're so good at this. That was amazing. That was great. It was great. It was a first. <laughs> it's a first. It's a, it's a first such. It's the first podcast I've ever done, actually. So you know, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>